Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily, JP McManus, billionaire, power broker, tax exile, and the bankroller of Limerick Hurling. Firstly, I'd like to congratulate Limerick on their great win. We're going for the big one on Sunday, and I know you'll bring it back. This year it's Limerick's. From a farmer's son to the man who helped fund Limerick JA on their way to unprecedented heights, JP McManus had humble beginnings but has become the billionaire that Irish people love to love and celebrities love to be associated with. Some of the world's elite golfers and celebrities have descended on Limerick for the JP McManus Pro-Am at Adair Manor. You know, we all want to come here and play this tournament for JP. I mean, he's, you know, the reason why we're all here is because of the quality of gentleman that JP is. Today on the Indo Daily, I'm joined by Liam Collins to explore how JP McManus has avoided begrudgery to achieve something very rare, being a popular billionaire in Ireland. We had a prime at Limerick Golf Club in 1990, where mostly Irish pros. It was successful in its own right. It raised what we thought then was good money. Liam Collins, JP McManus, man or myth? People seem to love him in a way that they don't love any other billionaire or mildly wealthy person in this country. Yeah, I think that he has um, so many diverse interests, you know, from racing to business to these opulent uh, resorts like Adair Manor. And he comes, and of course, uh, the hurling, uh, Limerick hurling, and he comes across as... uh, you know, the ordinary man in the crowd. But of course, there's there's far more to him, you know, than that. He he's um he likes to do things on his own terms. He's he um he's an international businessman who's based in Geneva, but yet he professes this great and I'm sure he does have this great love of Limerick, but everything he does, he does on his own terms. And his world is a very enclosed world. Outside of national hunt racing, you know, his world is is that of a, a jet-set billionaire. He does give this persona of the ordinary, decent billionaire, but it's a bit of a cliche. He had humble beginnings. He was came from a relatively ordinary family. Yeah, he started on, um, they, they were farmers outside Limerick and they had a bit of plant hire and um, I think he used to drive machines from a very young age. Um, he didn't seem to be that interested in school. He was more interested in, in getting on in life. And so he was in the plant hire business 
and also dabbling on uh, in betting. He, um, the family were immersed in greyhound racing. And so I think he, he learned a lot of his early skills going to race meetings as a young fella. And, um, and then he graduated to, to the horses and uh, he took out a bookies license when he was just 21. And as most people know, it's a pretty cutthroat business. So for someone to survive in that uh, world is, is pretty, shows they're, they're pretty sharp. The move into gambling, it's a strange way to start because generally people who try to make money from gambling don't. Yeah, but it, there's a difference between people putting on bets and people who are professional gamblers. And, you know, um, um, J.P. McManus seems to be very dispassionate. Um, I remember talking to somebody who who had a pitch near him or knew him in the early days when he was starting on on course racing. And they said he wasn't much better than the rest of them at computing odds and knowing the game. But he had an uncanny knowledge for getting information and for analyzing it and knowing what was going to win and what was going to lose. And I think that that was the seeds of what became his his financial empire. So how quickly did he start to make, let's call it, real money, big money? Yeah, he he seems to have, in the early 1980s, late 1970s, early 1980s, he seemed to be um, someone who was pulling off huge gambling coups, who was um, making an awful lot of money and uh, this was uh, kind of um, covered by Raymond Smith, the journalist in the Irish Independent, who christened him the Sundance Kid and did big feature articles about his, his exploits as a gambler. And um, I remember being sent to Cheltenham in 1982, and I was with Raymond Smith and J.P. McManus when um, his horse, Mr. Donovan, won his first race at Cheltenham. And uh, it was a lot less informal in those days. And I remember we walked over and were introduced to uh, the Queen Mother and a friend of Margaret Thatcher's called Woodrow White, who was chairman of the Tote. And basically, uh, I was kind of shocked when he said to JP, I'm delighted uh, you've won this race, JP, because no man has put more money on the race courses of England than you have. So I suddenly realized that I was really in the presence of someone who wasn't flamboyant or didn't get too emotional about it, but uh, was now a huge player in English and Irish gambling. 1982, Liam, that's 40 years ago. He wasn't a household name at that stage, but obviously he was well on his way to accumulating his fortune. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think by that time he had, uh, you know, he had Martinstown stood and um, he was living fairly well, but he was he was available in Cheltenham. You'd find him in the dining room of the Queens, you know, having dinner. He wasn't, uh, there was no ostentation about him. But he... But he um, let the likes of Liam Collins into his company. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't seem to mind, but... Then you heard stories that uh, of these huge gambling um, coups, and you also heard around Cheltenham there was a lot of very, very um, 
big card games at night. Now, that was a place you weren't going to get because there was huge amounts of money changing hands. And as I say, it's the difference between people who bet and people who gamble. JP is a gambler, but he makes sure to get the absolute best information and the best odds before he plunges. And then he moved from the race courses or the dog tracks or, or the bookies office into the financial world. Yeah, this, um, this well, he, he, he never lost his interest in the racing. And I think that's one of the things that endears him to many people in that business in that he, he still goes to the National Hunt meetings, which are kind of the poor relation in, in, the, indus- in the racing industry. But he teamed up in the mid-1980s with uh, John Magnier, who is racing royalty but comes from the flat um, he's uh, racing. And uh, John Magnier is um, the owner of Coolmore Stud. He set it up with Vincent O'Brien and Robert Sangster. And they literally generated huge, huge money. Hi, Terry. I am with J.P. McManus and Dermot Desmond from Ireland. So I'm going to ask you for all of our fans that go over to Ireland, what is your favorite golf course? Uh, in Ireland, uh, there's so many of them I like. But uh, I have a particular fancy for Waterville, uh, Madeira, Limerick. Dermot, walking up, you said... Well, I think J.P. covered them all there, really. <laughs> the other um, third figure in the triangle, if you like, was Dermot Desmond, who was then um, a money broker. He had set up NCB stock brokers in Dublin and he, he kind of was a brash businessman in that he broke the cartel, the old financial cartel, which was controlled uh, by the big banks uh, when he took over a stockbroking firm. So the three of them got together and uh, they have all acknowledged their debts to each other, as others as as mentors, and they began investing in almost everything. They invested in property. They invested in stocks and shares. Then, in 1992, uh, we had what was called the first of the um, currency crises, and literally a lot of the countries around the world had. Um, currencies that were overvalued. And uh, the three Irish men, along with um, another um, money dealer called Joe Lewis, began to bet against uh, currencies. Their first big coup was said to have been the, um, the Mexican peso, where they, it, when it was eventually devalued by 10%, they uh, are supposed to have made you know, literally hundreds of millions. Never waste a good crisis type ne- scenario. They were betting on that things the devaluation for the they economy. Were, yeah, they were betting that they, that it would be devalued, and they then went on to a raft of other Irish current of other currencies, including the Irish currency, which was devalued um, in that the, those turbulent financial times. So. They literally went from being very wealthy to being stratospherically wealthy. They went into the the billionaire classes uh, by the late 1990s. Which again strikes me, Liam, and I kind of keep going back to it, is the relationship we usually have with wealthy people in this country. They made big money on the back of a lot of misery in that time of the Irish economy. A lot of people were losing their jobs, struggling, emigration was high. 
And these guys made big money. Well, that that is uh, the point uh, that is is valid. But it also, they would argue that if the Irish authorities or the Mexicans or whoever hadn't stood on their dignity and had devalued in time, they could have avoided. So it's, they're purely pragmatic businessmen. And the Irish... Uh, financial system provided them with an opportunity to make a lot of money, as did the Mexican and other countries in Europe who came under pressure at the time. And they're the type of people who who grab those financial opportunities. Pragmatic businessmen who look for financial opportunities, but the Irish tax system doesn't particularly suit JP, or perhaps that's the one wrong way to word it, but he has chosen to be a tax exile. He has. They're they're all um, um, tax exiles uh, in that sense. Um, he operates now from um, I'm told a six story office block overlooking Lake, Lake Geneva, and he um, has financial interests which are now mostly outside Ireland. If looking through the financial records, you'll find that in 1993, most of the companies in which he was a director of, he resigned and the companies uh, closed down and he basically moved his money-broking operation to Switzerland, uh, where he is uh, domiciled. And this has led to controversy and a lot of... um, um, charges that, you know, he is making the decisions about how his money is spent rather than if he ha- lived here. He has defended himself. He's not comfortable with the word tax exile because he says he is a patriotic Irishman and patriotic Limerick man. And I have a quote here from him uh, in which he says, I didn't leave the country in order to avoid paying a tax or to avoid paying a future tax that was about to come down the line. I paid my taxes and I set up a business abroad. What do they want? Do they want you to come back and try and support the local economy, try to earn some money abroad and then put it in the local economy? That's what I like to do. I consider myself Irish. I'm proud to be Irish. And I think... I'm doing the country more good by being abroad, trying to earn a few quid. A few quid. The few quid is a a typically modest uh, JP um, statement. In the Midwest, we are so lucky to have had this generosity. Um, It makes such a difference. To small organisations, it's the difference between success and failure. We have the Milford Hospice, uh, we have the Women's Refuge, and there are hundreds of organisations. Liz Kennett, an incredible place for autistic children um, in Charleville, and St. Joseph's Foundation in Charleville. None of these facilities would be of the standard they are today without the support of the McManus family, and particularly the Pro-Am. But it strikes me that the likes of Bono make similar arguments about all the charity work that he does. There are other businessmen that we could name who do an awful lot of charity work. But it has worked for JP. And you say he hasn't got any great PR behind him or a big machine that's doing this for him. But his investment in Limerick Hurling, the Pro-Am and the money that brings in. We saw at the Pro-Am, the WAGs, if uh, that disrespectful term, but the wives and girlfriends of golfers being given 10,000 euro credit cards to go and spend in the local village in Adair. It's that sort of thing which it brings is, people It's into, astonishing, yeah. I mean, you just have to... to um, 
you stand back in awe about the money that's involved. I mean, he brings, I think the first year was of that uh, golf classic, charity uh, golf classic was 1990 and it earned about 1 million, 1 point something million for charity in Limerick. Uh, it now um, earns 40 million a year. Last time the program was held in 2010, it raised over 40 million euros for charity, which is an incredible And sum. it attracts all these people, you know, the cream of, of golfers. Tiger Woods, I think, was his uh, guest in 2005 uh, when he opened it, in a, when he moved it to Adair Manor. And I mean, Tiger Woods said that... Um, you know, JP is a modest man. He doesn't like to go in front of the cameras. He doesn't like to talk. And that's why we're here to talk for him. JP is held in tremendous affection here in Ireland and by all the professionals because of the impact that the Pro-Am and the funds that have been raised have had over decades. You know, it's incredible. Who needs PR when you can have yeah. Tiger Woods do it for you? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's incredible that probably one, the most recognized sportsman in the world, if, you know, uh, has this affinity with, um, you know, a man who began on a small farm in Limerick and has never made any great pronouncements about politics or life or he just gets on quietly with the business and um whatever he does he 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 does better than anybody else in almost anybody else in the world and the same could be said of his friends desmond and um but has he has he bought all that love Liam, is my question i don't think so i think irish people have an affinity with someone who doesn't show their wealth but has it and, you know, they must be a very bright family. I mean, his his brother, Jerry, is is a, also a multi-multi-millionaire who has a private jet and is supposed to be one of the best vintage car collections in the world. And yet nobody knows even what he looks like because unlike JP, he keeps everything I was going private. to say, I'm not sure I agree that JP doesn't show his wealth. Getting Tiger Woods and Niall Horn and Jamie Dornan and, and all these people... Uh, to take part in a pro-am is showing your wealth. And I want to go on to, well, before we get on to the to Limerick hurling, because I suspect as an Offaly man, I would argue that he shows his wealth there as well. But going back to his gambling, I want you to tell me about the backgammon game in California in 2017. Oh, yes. This was, uh, this was a famous backgammon game that went on for four days um, against a wealthy hedge fund um, uh, operator and in the process of it um, I'm told or we, we we later learned that JP made 14 million uh, he, in he, a backgammon game in a backgammon game and the only reason that we ever learned of this game and the absolutely enormous sums of money that were um, that were wagered on this is that uh, the loser <laughs> rather unsportingly held on to five million, which he said he would owe the taxman. And JP sued him. And um, I think in the end, he lost the case. He had to settle for the 11. But it just million. shows you the staggering amounts of money. You don't play a backgammon game where there are 
millions on the table unless you can afford to lose those millions. And Liam, you mentioned that both JP and the, the Sandy Lane set enjoyed spending some spending their money, enjoying their, their lifestyle. I believe you went touring some properties in Barbados. I did. I went for Christmas to that lovely island. I didn't stay in Sandy Lane, but I certainly had a good look around it. Uh, the parts I was able to see as just an ordinary tourist. Um, it's so opulent. They bought an old plantation resort and much to the disgust of a lot of people, especially the Anglos who holidayed there, they demolished the whole thing, rebuilt it, and it is just one of the most luxurious um, golf resorts uh, in the world. Um, I'm, I like to tell the story of going out on a boat trip and coming in for to have my sundowner at the front of number one Sandy Lane, uh, where I said to the skipper of the boat, I hear that's owned by Rihanna. And he looked at me and said, no, no, he said, Rihanna lives there, but the Irish boys own it. So they're known very, very much in Barbados as the Irish boys. To the hurling lean. Yeah, the hurling is, I know that everybody, you know, Limerick always had a good hurling team. And like anything JP did or does, he kind of seems to have taken it and brought, obviously, given a lot of money, provided a professionalism that have propelled them to the uh, the very top. So the ar- counter-argument, of course, is that he bought it. The JP supporters would say, you can't field a team unless they're capable of winning a game. No matter how much you know, money you put into it, you still have 15 players out there. They're amateurs, allegedly, after all. Most of them, I'm told that, you know, if there's an injury, they can be helicoptered up to a clinic in Dublin to be repaired ASAP. And there is no money spared. Money, money helps, let's be honest. Oh, money it, does it, help. Of course money helps. But at the end of the day, you know, it's 15 against 15. And it probably provides an incentive for the other teams to say, no, we, we can do this on our own. We don't have to, um, we, we don't have the great money. But you, if you look at Dublin, Cork, other teams have a lot of money behind them as well. They just don't have that single benefactor who's prepared to throw an enormous amount of money to get the results. It is opening up uh, something in the GAA, though, and I say this as someone from Offaly who is delighted that Shane Lowry is now to some extent, bankrolling off the JAA and we're building facilities and they're working on the underage. And you've seen results in the last couple of years at underage. And I think there is an acceptance within Offaly that without Shane Lowry's backing, a lot of that might not be possible. So JP is doing that on an even bigger level. He doesn't put his name or any of his company names on the jersey, but everyone knows it's JP. Oh, they know it's his money. Yeah, and he's done a very, it's a, it's a very, the jersey has the names of every club stitched into it, it from the smallest to the largest. They're barely perceptible. But yeah, he he's, it's sort of, I think, part of his ethos. He wants to be associated with winners, whether that's on the race course, in the financial markets, or hurling. JP gets what JP wants. Or he buys it. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Garrett Mulhall, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, with sound design by John Smith. 
Archive clips were from RTE, BBC, The Ryder Cup and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.